powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hi, everybody. Hey. Wow. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before we get into the episode, I want to say thanks again to my last guest, Mari Cartagenova. What an absolute delight, and I was amazed at how much Duval Nation and others took to the episode. If you haven't had a chance to check out Mari's interview, then I encourage you to give it a listen after the conclusion of this episode. All right. Welcome to episode 93. This one, folks, is a gift for the 80s generation. In one of the greatest moments of the Derek Duvall show, we secured an interview with a woman whose vocal abilities captured the hearts of the entire world. We have on the show legendary vocalist Carol Decker of the 80s powerhouse pop group Tapau. Carol discusses her humble origins how she got into being a professional musician, the formation of T'Pau, their mega-hit album, Bridge of Spies, and its worldwide hit single, Heart and Soul, and so much more. We have lots to get into, so let's just dive on in. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome all the way from Henley-on-Thames, the front lady of the group T'Pau, Carol Decker. Carol, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How has the weather been out by you today? Um, hi, Derek. Thanks for asking me on well. I don't know if you're picking up the news um, over there, but it's we've got these crazy heat waves at the moment. Mm-hmm. So two weeks ago, it was, um, I know you do a different, you do, do you do Fahrenheit? We do. Yeah, we Celsius. do Fahrenheit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't do the math. You'll have to do the math. <laughs> we say maths. So it's 40, 41 degrees here, which was crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's climbing back up there now. Then it rained for ages like it always does in the uk and now it's boiling hot again and we have total scorched earth all the grass is brown everybody's lawns all the fields looks like a desert i am going over there in a few weeks um because my family all my family lives in wales so i've been hearing all the horror stories of the heat wave that's been strangling the nation it's probably still raining in wales though oh you never know So I start my interviews off with the same question, that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, oh, I found it horrible, and I'm always really honest about it. So after the first lockdown, which, you know, none of us really knew what was going on, it was all a bit scary, I very quickly fell down on the side of lockdowns is not the way to go. They're going to be worse than the infection. You know, I was one of many who were sort of trying to talk about this on social media and stuff but you just got screamed at and yelled down and people were frightened to death they got the absolute crap frightened out of them when sadly um with very few exceptions it was the the really elderly over here a lot of the obese a lot of obese people got it really badly that seemed to make you weak um so there was a certain 
group of people that were very badly affected by it and that was awful but the rest of us weren't and so I was I felt like I was under house arrest um obviously being a musician I'm used to to being on the road all the time but it wasn't about me in a selfish way not being able to do what I want to do it was I, I just didn't agree with it and now we're seeing all the roosters are coming home to roost aren't they you know all the reports and the inquiries are coming in I'm sure worldwide certainly here in the UK that we've driven our economy into a wall we might be facing a depression never mind a recession and that's not down to COVID that's down to all the governments that locked their people up so I my defiance syndrome was off the scale and but there's nothing there was and the worst thing is there was nothing you can do and for the first time in my life I discovered how little control I have over my own life I've always been a kind of freewheeling free-spirited sort of person and I've led an interesting varied and lucky life pretty much doing what I want and I suddenly realized that's an illusion that they want to stop you so yeah I got a bit I got a bit fed up so every journey has a beginning now you were born in Liverpool am I correct that's right yeah a, a, a yeah. city that has a reputation for churning out some pretty big name musicians well it has yeah these <laughs> four guys I can't remember what they're called yeah. as, you know the, the, some named after an insect anyway they were yeah. quite good apparently yeah. so what was it like growing up in Liverpool ah oh, well you got me there because I didn't grow up in Liverpool I, I oh. left when I was seven my dad got a job in Shropshire so that's a, a big county in the middle of the UK for all our American listeners and um, and it's a farming county. My dad wasn't a farmer. He just got a job in a supermarket chain. And we moved out of Liverpool when I was seven. So I grew up in quite a rural environment. And our nearest biggest city was Shrewsbury, which is a beautiful medieval town. It absolutely rocks. And so as soon as I could, I, started, I went to college there. You know, that's where I went to art school. And then I met Ronnie. And then we started the band and everything. So there was still stuff going on as long as you could get to Shrewsbury. But the rest of Shropshire was quite uh, sleepy. Yeah. So at what age did you get the idea that you wanted to be a professional musician? I would never insult musicians by calling myself a musician. <laughs> I'm a singer. <laughs> I'm a singer and I play the worst piano you ever heard. But just, you know, I play, I play, I can block out chords enough to write. Well, I, I was a precocious child. Um, by that, I mean, I wasn't sort of rude or anything, but I was constantly singing, tap dancing and let's do the show right here. And, you know, the old joke somebody would open the fridge and I'd do 20 minutes, you know, in front of the light, that kind of thing. So I was always um, very musical and loved performing and showing off. But then I went, as I got older, I went to a very, very straightforward, um, an academic girls grammar school. So back then here in the UK, we had an exam called the 11 plus. So when you get to 11, you take this exam and if you pass it, you go to a grammar school, which is kind of like a high end high school. You know what I mean? Mm. And I was, I had a lucky day, passed my 11 plus and went to a phenomenal school. It really was phenomenal, but I definitely was um, a round peg in a square hole because I didn't really fit. And so all, all the things that I was good at, which was like drama and art and singing, they weren't really seen as careers so much as um, hobbies or accomplish nice accomplishments for a young lady to have, you know. So it wasn't until I was kind of bummed around a bit after I left school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. So when I was 22, I got this job in a museum. 
and I was on unemployment benefits and you had to do this work experience, you know, to sort of earn it. So I got this job at a museum and there was an art team there. They were sort of um, making all the models, you know, the scaled down house, houses and we were doing Iron Age pig smelting and stuff. It was really interesting. I just loved them. They were so bohemian. They were so different. So I thought, oh, I want to do that. So with a really bad sort of high school art portfolio and a few additional sketches, I blagged my way into the Wakeman School of Art in Shrewsbury. Uh, so I'm 22 by now. And um, I, again, just, I've never felt so at home. I found my place with um, these wonderful creatives. You know, they were, and I was doing photography, fine art, printing, wearing paint spattered clothes. I just loved it, you know, and always singing along to the radio in the studio. And somebody sort of made a gag, you know, why don't you join a band and stop annoying us kind of thing. <laughs> And, uh, and then said, actually, you have a great voice and my friend is looking for a singer and I'm going to a party this week. I'm going to see him. Why don't you come with me? And I did. And I met this guy called Julian Ward and he had a local band in Shrewsbury and I auditioned for them and I got the job. And we got so busy so quickly just doing covers. I, I dropped out of art school halfway through my second year and kind of ran away with the circus. This was the lasers spelt with a Z or a Z. L-A-Z-E-R-S. So that was my first band. We were largely covers and ska songs. You know what ska is over there? I think you so. Will. I've heard it before. You will, because you're originally from the UK. It's like um it's a it's a bit like reggae, but it's mm. a kind of particular branch of it. So we did covers, which you had to do because nobody's interested in people they've never heard of and their songs that they've never heard of. But if you if you're playing covers that they know, songs that they know. So we'd do covers and then we'd slip in a Scar song that Julie, largely Julian had written. And then Ronnie Rogers, who formed Power With Me, he was in another local band and they were called The Cats and they were K-A-T-Z. So Z was very big in the early 80s. So we were the Lasers with Z. They were the Cats with the Z. And I went to see him. I'd heard they were the sort of competition, you know, you went to see what they were like. They were great. He was fantastic. He's a great singer, really good rhythm guitarist. And I fancied the pants off him. So I kind of stole him from that band. And he became my boyfriend for 13 years. And um, he joined the Lasers. And then we split from them and focused on our writing. My dad lent us some money and we got some home recording stuff. And then we got a production deal with a huge recording studio in Wales in Monmouth called Rockfield. So Rockfield, every huge artist in the world has recorded there. But the um, one song that I know everybody will know, Bohemian Rhapsody, was recorded there. That album was recorded there. And that's when Ronnie and I decided to call ourselves Talk in America because Kingsley, who owned the studio, he was trying to get us a record deal. And he'd go, you know, this is, this is great. This is big. I mean, we're talking America. And we thought, that's really great. We'll call ourselves that, you know, obviously it's any rubbish. <laughs> so we were talking America for about six months. Here's the nice, you know, complete circle cut to, let me see, four years later, we finally get our record deal. And one of the record producers who liked our demos and wanted to produce the album and did produce our first two albums was Roy Thomas Baker, who produced a load of Queen stuff and produced Bohemian Rhapsody in Rockfield. So that was really nice little joining up of the dots, don't you think?
So where did the name of the band come from originally? I, I heard it was something to do with Star Trek. That's correct, yeah. Um, I was, uh, we, we had the album in the can and the release date set. We'd been out to a studio just outside of Chicago with Roy and it was all ready to rock and roll. And we didn't have a name because um, Ronnie and I, it was just the two of us really working hard and we put a handful of musicians around us, two guys we knew from back home and two musicians that we got to know when we were starting to knock about in London on the scene. So we didn't, it's not a band that grew up together and always had this name, you know. So we would all pick names and we would sit in a pub in London and argue and go, no, someone say, oh, how about this guy? Oh, that's crap, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the record company then said, you really are running out of time. So I was back home at my flat in Shrewsbury and I was literally just pottering about and the TV was burbling away in the corner. I wasn't even really paying attention. And the original series of Star Trek was on and I kept hearing this like, you know, blah, 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 to pound, to pound. That's an interesting noise. So I turned around and I watched it, the episode, for like 10 minutes. And nice. power was um, a character in the episode. I think it's called Amok Time. And she was a Vulcan high priestess. And I think possibly related to Mr. Spock somewhere <laughs> along the line. I got told all this, you know. And I just loved the word. And it's onomatopoeic and snappy. And I love the way it was spelled, T-apostrophe-P-A-U. Mm -hmm. um, and so I said, how about to pow? And I, you know, I've told this story before. It was the, the name that the boys hated the least. <laughs> Excuse me. So um, we were to pow because we were running out of time. Nice. So with Roy Thomas Baker, how long did it take for Bridge of Spies to be cut as a complete album? Oh, gosh. I've kind of gotten probably three months, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, when you do a big album, back in those days, you would, you go into a residential residential studio and like live there. You know, some bands take a year, don't they, to, mm -hmm. to get an album together. I think those days are gone, but certainly in the 70s and 80s, people would literally move into a studio and spend months refining the demos, getting it just right. I would say probably three months, I think, um, in Royal Recorders. And then uh, me and Ronnie flew to... Um, new york and watched off bearing in mind this was at this was vinyl yeah. i know it's made, made a resurgence now but it was the only thing back then and we watched our first album get mastered mm. and it was just awesome to to watch the skill you know of this engineer and they do a thing where they bring all the, the sound levels together even though it's been mixed it has to be mastered which is like a different sonic thing yeah I still don't fully understand it after all these years, but I know when it's good and I know when it's bad, you know. So with the three months and obviously other than the mastering, what were your favorite memories from making that album? Being in America, just loved it. So exciting. Being close to Chicago, which was incredible. So when we had a day off, we'd go shopping and go on Lakeshore Drive. We went to the comedy store there. And I just, I'd only ever seen American cities on the TV. And they were just shock and awe, you know, the big slivers of glass and how tall they were, how majestic mm -hmm. they were. The first time I went to New York, I just, you know, it was just it, New York's a rock star. Um, Chicago is pretty similar to, I absolutely love it. Oh, margaritas. Yeah, margaritas. Always had margaritas. We were quite close to Wisconsin as well. So the few bars there, we used to go and have margaritas. That was fun. And just the whole, um, it was part of the American way of life that I really love. You know, every country, obviously, it's got its problems and stuff. I know it's not perfect. Right. But 
I love happy hour. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend, he was a sound engineer, because there's so many great snacks come on the bar at happy hour, like chicken wings and stuff. They would never do that here in the UK. They wouldn't give anything away, you know. But I had friends who'd been impoverished music musicians in America who said, you go to a bar in happy hour and nurse half a lager and get a full meal because of everything they put on the bar. So you'd save a lot of money, you know. When we first toured, yeah, the tour bus going from state to state in America because they're all so different from each other, going all the way down to New Mexico and Texas and places like that. It's an awesome country. You know, it's an awesome, awesome, awesome country, I think. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this amazing interview with Carol Decker. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink, take some super nice long deep breaths, you know, Clouseau style. Give a couple friends of the show your attention, and we will be right back. Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ, and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jam, so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. I want to be as high as these billionaires in space. Hi, this is Dominic Canarella. I'm Eric McCoy. And I'm Max Meislish. We are Them Fantasies. Right now, you're listening to our brand new single, Billionaires. Billionaires is about how absurd it is that the mega-rich are going to space as if there's nothing left for them here on Earth. Nowhere else to go but up, right? You can listen to Billionaires now on all streaming platforms and be sure to check out our brand new music video on our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere on social media at them underscore fantasies. Teachers... Do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, 
Barnes and Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 93 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our incredible interview with Tapao front lady, the amazing Carol Decker. Bridge of Spies is mm-hmm. certified four-time platinum. Yeah. Looking back, are you still in awe of how the public took to that album? Completely, yeah. You know, you hope uh, you hope to have um, a record get in the top 20 maybe in your home country. And back then we had this one um, really big music program called Top of the Pops. And everybody, you know, grew up watching it and it had been going since the 60s. And so I just thought, oh, I'd love to have a hit single and appear on Top of the Pops. And that's about as far as my thought process went, you know, didn't really go much past that. So when we started having worldwide hits, of course, the first worldwide, the first huge hit we had, international hit we had was Heart and Soul from the States, which was amazing. Went to number four in the Billboard chart and stayed on the chart for months. Um, and yeah, it was it was like, to be honest, it was like holding a tiger by the tail a little bit because it just took off and you had to be everywhere at once, you know. Nice. Heart and Soul yeah. became an anthem for an entire generation. Oh, thank you. <laughs> when you perform it live, how does it make you feel to see your fans singing with you? Oh, I love it. It's when they, you know, when, when your fans know particularly the chorus of the song. Like I was, I've been doing a load of festivals just now. It's festival season. I was singing Heart and Soul uh, to a 12,000 strong crowd on Sunday. And they just all belt it at you. And I always do a thing where, you know, you come to the end of the song and say, okay, now you take over. This is your chorus. And you go, and you go, give a little bit of, hold the mic out to the audience. And they blast you <laughs> with that. And particularly in this, in, in the UK, a song for us called China in Your Hand. It went to number one for five weeks here. So I, we do heart and soul and then follow it with China in Your Hand. And it's shock and awe. And Bridge of Spies came out 35 years ago this year. So to think that people are still out there singing my songs with me, it's just amazing, you know? Okay, we're going to go ahead and take a moment and we're going to go ahead and play that single now. Duval Nation and other listeners, here is the 1987 hit track, Heart and Soul.
You mentioned China in your hand a second ago. Where did the title for that come from exactly? Oh, this is such a long story. I'm going to really try to shorten it down. So okay. I'm so bored with my sound of my own voice. I watched, like watching to power on the telly. I was watching a documentary on the writing of the book Frankenstein. So Mary Shelley was 19 years old when she wrote the book, and she was married to Percy Bysshe Shelley, and they were big friends with Lord Byron, and all these hugely intellectual people and age 19 she had this pulp fiction hit called frankenstein and it caused a lot of problems in their set a lot of jealousy criticism you know this is crap why do people buy this why don't they read my essays you know and they were sort of um, the intellectual elite and um it caused a lot of problems in the set so that's a short version and then of course the content of the book is really sad where man you know, Dr. Frankenstein acts as God and creates man in his own image. And I don't think any movie has ever really captured how sad the book is, you know. Um, and it was a bit sort of be careful what you wish for. So, you know, Mary had all this success writing the book and then it all kind of turned on her. Poor Dr. Frankenstein creates this monster and nobody understands the monster and it and everybody turns on the monster and it turns on him and then i got the sense of fragility and then ronnie's mom had given us this tea service because our parents were giving us stuff all the time because we were broke you know so here have some food here have some cups you know that kind of thing and i was drying it one day washing and drying it didn't have a dishwasher couldn't afford it and i sort of held it up as i dried it and it was a china cup and as i looked into it the sun was coming through the kitchen window and there was a a japanese woman's face in the bottom of the cup not an actual face (laughs) sorry nobody's head was in there but anybody who knows about china china um good expensive china they'll often put a little drawing in the bottom of the cup or something and there's this beautiful woman in the bottom of the cup and i quickly got very nervous i've been like using this cup for my tea and just like banging it on the worktop i didn't realize how special it was so then that fell into my head as well with the kind of China in your hand, you know, the real fragility. So don't push too far. Your dreams are China in your hand, meaning be careful what you wish for. Things can be very, very fragile. So I told you it was a long story, very complicated. <laughs> and I probably sound nuts, don't I? No, not at all. <laughs> the way my mind works, I'm very mercurial. <laughs> so during the success of Bridge of Spies, what was the best venue that you've ever played at? Oh, played some amazing venues and some shock and awe festivals of like 40,000 people and stuff. But I would say for me, the a box that had to be ticked back then was Wembley Arena. So this is before the O2 existed or, or any of the, the bigger stadiums. You know, back then in the 80s, Wembley Arena is where all the big stars played. So we played it four times opening for Brian Adams. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was fab. And then we sold it out ourselves a couple of times in our heyday. So, yeah, Wembley. What led to the um, the breakup of Tapau? And what about and how did the reunion in 1998 come about? The breakup of Tapau, we all sort of falling out. And I'm going to keep that, that short because, you know, you talk to a lot of bands and you, you, they tell you the same story. You all end... You start out as the, the three, four, five, six, seven musketeers. You're closer than family spend all your time together you've got these dreams these aspirations you work really hard and it takes its toll on you and we started having arguments about creativity and about money and stuff like that so at the end of the the promise tour which was 1991 i let the boys go 
because they were on a production deal to, to me and Ron, you know, and I just thought I, this isn't working anymore. It's just really sad because it was like a, something that had once been wonderful, but we just couldn't see eye to eye on anything anymore. So I let the boys go. And then the next year we got dropped by our label anyway. So, and after that, it was always a bit of a struggle to get anything away. And 1998, it wasn't a reunion. It was me going back to work. I'd got new management and he put a little band around me and I just started working again, got back on the road, you know, and then, oh, let me see, in the 2013, meanwhile, in about 93, Ronnie and I had split up as well. This is a horrible time, horrible, horrible time. His mum had died, my dad had died, the band had broken up, our career had gone down the toilet and all this sort of took its toll on us and we just didn't have much to give to each other anymore. So we, we went our separate ways. Um, but by 2013, we'd always said friends after an, an initial period of it being incredibly sad, you know. Then he got somebody, he's he's happily married, I'm happily married. And in 2013, Ronnie came back into the band to tour with me and he's still in the band. So the two founder members and the principal songwriters have been back together since 2013, which is great. And I'm happy to say that our original drummer, Tim Burgess, he's my good friend. He lives in Canada now, um, has done for many years, and we're always in touch. And Dean, who was um, in the band for the longest time, not the original guitarist, that was Taj Wiskowski, but Dean took over from Taj for six years. We're good pals again, and he's he's in another band, and he's doing well. Paul, the bass player, he, he left the business, but we emailed each other, and we sort of like got friendly again. But Michael, the keyboard player, I've not seen since 1991 because um, he and I didn't really get on uh, in the end very much at all. Mm -hmm. So, the, you know, I wish him well. I hope he's well. I hope everybody is well. But um, there was some, there was not, not a lot really left in common once the band was over, you know, on a personal level. Yeah. So, uh, but me and Ron, and we have this amazing band. And Dave, my drummer now, he joined the band in 1997. So I think, how many years is that? 20 five yeah you don't get that for murder that's what he no. always says you know so he's been with me so long now. <laughs> as musicians age a lot of their vocal range ages with them but from what i have seen and what other fans have seen you seem to have, still have a lot of the vocal abilities that you had in the 80s how have you taken such good care of your voice oh that's really kind of you to say so i i will confess to sometimes feeling a little insecure um, when i've got a lot of shows on because you know um i ha i look after myself so when i've got work coming up um i will start to behave myself because i do like a glass of wine that's very dehydrating so when i've got gigs coming up i'll behave myself um i do my vocal training um i all down the years, I've seen a vocal coach just to keep on top of technique, you know, because when, when you're very busy and you have big songs, you can't just keep screaming your lungs out like when you're a kid, you know, you've got to learn to do it properly. So all down the years, I went to power really big. I would have vocal coaches come to my house and just go through a few bits with me, breathing technique and stuff like that. I also work out. I've always been a gym bunny. Singing is very aerobic. So you've got to keep on top of your, your power, you know, and make sure you're your lungs are in good condition and I have to do that because somehow in my old age I've managed to develop asthma I never had it when I was a kid most people grow out of it I grew into it so obviously you know I've got all the inhalers and stuff like that it's fine it's not severe but it does impact my breathing so if I'm holding a long note you know without my asthma inhaler now before the show I would probably find that challenging but in terms of the bulk of my range it is still there 
my voice was always very powerful and also i have no vibrato never have had vibrato so you know for our listeners you know vibrato is when you get that ah, on a note i can fake it but if you have a lot of vibrato in your voice from the get-go as you get older that's gonna get wobblier but i have no vibrato <laughs> so yeah I, i'm lucky and i take care of myself as best i can yeah nice with like i said power singers now in the headlines again uh, you've got many many uh vocal vocalists like adele and yeah. some of that what are your opinions on younger generation who are able to belt out songs like that oh amazing bless adele she's had a share of vocal issues hasn't she you know yeah. so and she's like half my age so i do feel her pain i really do now i think she's fantastic um i do love a good voice i particularly like pink I think she's amazing. I love her. I like Christina Aguilera. I still love Cindy Lauper. You know, some really, really great voices. And more power to the girls, you know. It's just nice to see um, great, great vocalists out there. Mm. So it's been well documented at your frustrations with the radio business, uh, not showcasing new work and relying solely on past successful tracks. Yeah. What are your opinions on streaming services? My opinion is low. In fact, I just looked at my um, PRS, which is Performing Rights Statement, the other day, and it's reams and reams and reams and reams of data, mm. right? And it goes, your, your share, 0 0.04, 0 0.01. It's decimated songwriting royalties. Mm. Um, the day Naxter was born, you know, that, that was the kicker, really. Mm. And the streaming platforms and the record companies share all the money and unless you're in the top two percent of artists in the world we get crumbs absolutely crumbs now gary newman did not a big article about it a couple of years ago in fact, probably during lockdown where he revealed the pathetic amount he got for i think a million downloads of um cars you know mm. nothing and we're entitled to that that's our pension you know, um, my kids have got Spotify, my husband has Spotify, you know, everyone's doing it. I can't criticize anybody. That's the way it's done now. I understand that. But there is a price to pay. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's the artist that pays it. And, you know, not all of us are in that top 2%. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they can call their own shots. I'm sure they can if you're a powerful artist like Ed Sheeran or Adele. You know, I'm sure you can the stuff that's negotiated at their level that I, I, I wouldn't come anywhere near, but it is appalling. So what does the future hold for Carol Decker? Oh, Derek, that's such a big question. I never have a plan for the next day. I'm terrible. I'm a reactive person, not a proactive person. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, well, in the short term, lots of gigs this year. And then I go to Europe, um, november december for a thing called night of the proms which is incredible so it's been going for 30 years everybody worth their salt has done it so there's a massive orchestra huge choir and a rock band and you jump on and you do like maybe four or five of your your hits or something you know or how many the promoter wants you to do and i cannot wait to do it it's been a little on my bucket list for ages and i finally got asked which is lovely and I've been doing quite a lot of that. So there's another another brand called 80s Classical. I've done their shows and they've just invited me on another one in Belfast. Again, it's beautiful 70-piece orchestra. So it's, if you're 
performing the same songs all the time, your classic hits, it's really nice if the the medium is different. So either mm. we do a songs and stories acoustic evening, a little bit of chat maybe with the audience, or like I say, I'm doing massive festivals at the moment, which is shock and awe. Or to work with an orchestra is incredible. So you mix up the way that you do it, which sort of keeps your, your juices flowing a little bit, you know? Yeah. So as we begin to wind down this interview, what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Well, I'm on Twitter, but I'm usually shouting about <laughs> <laughs> stuff. They might not like it. So at Carol Decker on Twitter. I do do Instagram, but I keep forgetting. And that's just Carol. Mm. I can't even remember my handle. Is it Carol D to Pal? You'll find me, I'm sure. But the, uh, we have a great um, Facebook page run by a, a fantastic fan of ours called Dean Hollett. So Facebook is uh, to power forward slash Carol Deck, and that has all the gigs and nice. everything like that. Yeah. And then um, I do have a website. Do people even use websites anymore? I don't know. And mm. that's www.tpau.co.uk. All nice. lowercase, no apostrophe. So yeah, but we we let we try and let people know where we're gigging, and it's either me and the band, or me and some of the band, or sometimes it's me with a house band. You know, like a lot of the festivals just now, mm-hmm. they want you with a house band. So I take James Ashby, who's my longtime guitarist and backing vocalist. Um, I take him as my wingman, and we jump in front of the house band, and it's still fantastic. There's some great musicians out there. They're just, I have the privilege of playing with so many wonderful people. I'm a very lucky girl. Yeah. So I end my interviews with my favorite question. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would want to say to the people of Earth? It's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you. Nice. Carol, as a child of the 80s and a fan of T'Pal, this has to be one of the greatest honors of my life. Since I started this show, I want to wish you nothing but the best and continued success for your future oh thank you Derek. well can i just say that right back at you pal and lots of love to all your listeners you do a wonderful podcast i did a bit of research before i came on i must admit and it's fabulous fantastic standard great guests and um, wonderful entertainment for us all thank you you're welcome and just like that devon nation we come to the end of episode 93 I want to thank Carol for taking the chance on this show to come on and tell her story of her incredible life. I hope everyone enjoyed that as much as I did. If you had told me in 1988 that I would be having a chat with the Carol Decker, I would have told you you're out of your goddamn mind. It's moments like this as to why I created The Derek Duvall Show. We are creeping forward to that incredible centennial episode, and I have some absolute amazing episodes coming out between now and then. So keep your eyes peeled on your favorite podcasting platform for those new episodes. Okay, a few housekeeping items before we close out today. We have another awesome episode of Derek and Mindy's Fun With Movies dropping this week. And if you've been catching those, you will understand how much fun they've been to record. The team tries to get those out on Wednesdays every week, so keep your eyes peeled for it. Have you had a chance to check out our store on TeePublic? We have everything from magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have a carefully curated collection of t-shirts put together by myself and Mrs. Duvall. Be sure to go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Look on the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on TeePublic. And as always, we want to thank TeePublic for being such great partners. On behalf of the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to remind you that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We lost a very close friend four years ago to breast cancer, 
and I have another close friend who has been affected. Work it out with your insurance company, but I urge all women to make an appointment to get a mammogram, especially if you have family history. An early crucial catch can mean the difference between life and death. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, to explore past episodes and find links to purchase merchandise. Please subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Derek Duval Show.